Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 141, recorded on October 27th, 2021. The Cloud Pod wears Gaudi outfits for Amazon's new deep learning accelerator. Good evening, Ryan, Jonathan, and Peter. Welcome back. Thank you. Thanks. Hey, Justin. Yeah, we, we, we brought in... Uh, uh, ben and we brought in Rob, and they crushed it last week. And we almost fired you both, but we decided. <laughs> Honestly, I expected nothing else. So. <laughs> They're welcome to have another try. <laughs> Second round of interviews next week. <laughs> we'll lot, Peter and I will go on vacation, and we'll let you guys inter- you know let you do the show yeah. with them and see how it goes. Maybe there you go. <laughs> oh, they did great. They did. They stepped in nicely, and uh, Rob won the lightning round because uh, you know he he's had experience writing our. Our lightning round, or we can update version of joke. So he's he's very familiar with our humor. So yeah, he, uh, he nice. crushed it quite well, nice. which was great. So Peter took a point because okay. uh, he gets the guest points. Apparently, that took the point. Decided. Yeah, yeah. So that's fine. Yeah. Uh, well, it's been a busy week uh, once again in the cloud, as it always is, and we are, you know, just about to head into November, uh, and nothing seems to be slowing down. So let's uh, get into it. Uh, at HashiComp uh, last week, they announced the new console API gateway, a dedicated ingress solution for intelligently routing traffic to applications running on the HashiCorp console service mesh. Uh, they say this because customers have four distinct pillars they need to account for, including service discovery, service mesh, network automation, and access to the mesh. And of course, the new uh, console API gateway uh, is the fourth one, access to the mesh. Uh, designed to address all those needs, uh, providing users with consistency in how they handle inbound requests to the service mesh from external clients. Uh, I would say it seems pretty early for what most API gateway features have, like Kong and uh, Apogee and others. Uh, you know, I didn't see any quota management. I didn't see any reporting. Uh, it just really gives you input into the service mesh uh, and a way to get route traffic through that uh, from an external endpoint. So I think it has a long way to go. It is still early access, so you have to request it. But uh, you know, it makes sense, I think, based on what we've seen already with console, that they're trying to broaden out its footprint and make it the heart and soul of all of your cloud needs. They have plenty of time. I mean, they're probably, what, like five, six years away from version one? Yeah, really. <laughs> At least 10. I did sign up for the newsletter, though. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, if they integrate it with their, their Zero Trust Access solution, too, that would be really cool. There's some really cool things they yeah. can do. So I, I like where they're I mean, going. I like what they're doing. I just wish they were a little faster about getting to stable products. Yeah. No, I mean, the, what's nice is the, the vision is very clear on what they're they're trying to build out, and it's... Because they've been open source and providing, you know, pre-release versions for what seems like an eternity now. They've got a lot of experience. And so it's, I like it. I like what they're doing. Do you feel like they're becoming an, acqu- an acquisition target at all? Like, I, I keep wondering what their exit is. Is it, you know, does it get bought or does it do anything else? I don't, I don't really know. Yeah. So only two exits, get bought or go public. Yeah. Or I guess the third one is probably not one anyone plans for. Right. Yeah. I suspect they'll, they'll have to go public. It would be hard for a lot of people to buy them just because of their involvement across so many areas. And their commitment to open source. I get a little concerned. Yeah. I just get a little concerned about the breadth of software they're trying to innovate on. You know, a lot of different things they're doing. It's tough to do them all really well. Mm. I mean, it's always hard to you know do anything well, but they've done so well already. Their track record is success. So yeah, I have yeah. confidence they'll do something well. Just a matter of how long it takes. All right, let's move on to AWS, who was very busy. Uh, first up is the computer vision at the edge with AWS Panorama is now generally available. Uh, this got announced at reInvent, and I completely forgot about it. I don't know about you guys, uh, but this was an appliance, an SDK. 
uh, that basically allowed you to do video processing at the edge um, in your location. So one of the big problems, of course, with machine learning and AI on top of video data is that it needs to be highly accurate and needs low latency. And so shipping all that data back to the cloud just doesn't make sense. And so this appliance solves that issue. Uh, it's a one-time fee for the appliance, and then you pay for every data feed you feed into the appliance via the network port uh, and process on site. So uh, this isn't really a use case that I have, but for people who do, this is pretty cool. Yeah, I can see why in manufacturing, it's it would be important to to get answers back quickly, especially in terms of quality. Something sailing down the conveyor belt, it's either going to get pushed into the trash or it's going to get pushed into a cardboard box and, and sold someplace. So I can see why licenses uh, is important. I guess they could also mount them in all their trucks and check whether people really are picking bottles. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a that's a not so great use of this technology that I hope is not true. But yes, you're right. <laughs> I mean, but a five thousand dollars a pop uh, to start, that's a lot of money just to to validate that one use case. When I imagine in Amazon's use case, they're okay sending that data to the cloud and then processing it later. So just record it locally and then when the truck comes into the, the lot at night, they just download the data then and they fire you the next day. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess it has a lot to do with the fact that the, the, the types of places involved in manufacturing may not be, also be the types of places that have really good internet connections. I mean... Yeah. They, they like to put those places that, you know, create nuclear weapons and the, you know, middle of nowhere for a reason. <laughs> so yeah, they don't always have good connectivity. <laughs> well, speaking about other uh, weapons of potential mass destruction, <laughs> Amazon is joining the race for quantum computing with a new Caltech center they're opening. This article comes to us from the Washington Post, so I apologize for the paywall. Uh, this new facility is in Pasadena on the Caltech campus. Uh, Amazon built the building and is leasing the land directly from the university. Uh, of course, Google, IBM, Honeywell, and Microsoft and startups like IonQ uh, are leading the U.S. race to build the machines alongside a number of universities. And in China, university groups in Shanghai and Hefei are spearheading their quantum computing with large backing from the Chinese government. Uh, and Google and the University of Science and Technology of China have published papers over the last two years claiming to have achieved quantum supremacy, meaning that their experimental quantum computers were able to solve a particular calculation that would have stumped existing computers. Uh, Google in their paper said that they were able to calculate something in three and a half minutes that would have taken 10,000 years on a traditional computer. Of course, the biggest issue with quantum is qubits, uh, which are very finicky, and have the propensity to stop functioning if Ryan looks at them funny, uh, temperature changes, or any other weird anomalies that happen. Uh, there's a quote here from Oscar Painter, uh, who took a leave of absence from his job at Caltech Physics professor as a professor two years ago to join Amazon and help establish the new center. Uh, by the end of this decade, you might start to see machines capable of being able to tackle interesting problems and that you wouldn't, couldn't tackle with existing technologies today. Uh, so they're using the uh, classic Jedi move of hire somebody out of the university, bring them in, and then make them suck her back up to the university to get in the good graces. So well done, Amazon. Well played playbook. Uh, neither, Cal neither Caltech or Amazon comment on how much they're paying for rent for the land, uh, but apparently the IP that is developed at the Amazon Center will be owned by, by Amazon, and uh, data that is uh, Amazon-invested research will be co-owned or owned completely by Caltech. So there you go. You know, they need the paywall on that to, to fund the, the lease <laughs> for the building. <laughs> or probably, uh, you know, his Oscar Painter salary, right? Because, you know, genius move to go, you know, take a probably a very well-paid position for a few years, but maintain tenure. Like, yeah. solid. If you're an academic, nice. Yeah, well done. Yeah, yeah I think it's just interesting that uh, Amazon is seeing this as an area they need to tackle. You know, they have the IonQ chips in their cloud today. Um, available to you to play with and, and do things with. So this, you know, I suspect to see we'll see some new technology coming out in the next couple of years in the cloud somewhere, based on this research. So that'd be, be interesting. I mean, the, the other thing is, of course, it's it's research on American soil by 
you know, American people, I should say. Well, and when it comes to national security research, they like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You'll have the NSA knocking on their door, and they won't be knocking on Google's door yeah. as they're working with with the, with the Chinese. So, well, we've only learned that the global supply chain is only good when there's no pandemic. So there are advantages of developing in inland uh, and getting that technology here versus trying to develop it outside the country. You just have to hope we don't need to ship one of those things on a truck across the country because we equally screwed. <laughs> True, transportation <laughs> infrastructure is not great either. But yeah, hopefully they get that done at some point. Tesla affects it. Don't worry. Yeah, that's right. Self-driving. Self-driving all the way. Did you see that, that record deal that Tesla did with Hertz this week? Yeah. Yes. 100,000 vehicles. Man, Holy crap. That is, that's yeah, a big order. It is nutso. At market rates too. Right. No discount. I mean, everyone in the rental car market is hurting so badly that you know, if they can actually get any productivity out of Tesla to actually deliver those cars quickly, that could be a big fix for them versus trying to get you know Chevy or GM or whatever company they're trying to buy fleet cars from before. Plus, it gets electric cars into your hands as a as a consumer, yeah. which I think might be the way that people are actually going to play with these cars versus making a decision to buy. Absolutely, I mean it's it's a because especially since you know that the Model Threes aren't like terribly expensive, but it's still expensive to go mess around, and so this is a great way. I was trying, I immediately heard, thought of this and was trying to think of ways that I can go rent a car somewhere. Like, how do I you know justify this? Because just so I can go kart around in one of those things. I mean, you can rent mine if you like. I, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing the commute it doesn't quite pay for itself yeah. so I'm, I'm happy to like tour or something like that rent it you can borrow it by the day <laughs> good to know good to know well, that's very good to know alright well there was a ton of document DB stuff and I felt pity on Peter because these were all worthy of the lightning round on their own but because I was able to combine them together by deduping them uh, I've been able to create an actual article so Peter you're welcome you don't have to say at Amazon document DB with MongoDB compatibility four times so you're welcome with We'll go to be compatible. I'll say it anyway. Uh, first up, DocMeDB now supports access controls with user-defined roles. With user-defined roles, you can grant users one or more custom roles that determine which operations they're authorized to perform. Uh, for those viewers at home saying, hey, they already had RBAC, uh, this is an improvement on the existing RBAC support, which was previously limited to built-in roles only. Uh, DocMeDB is now even more compatible with support for several new MongoDB APIs indexing improvements uh, in DocMeDB 3.6 and 4.0, including uh, exciting aggregation operators like dollar sign literal and aggregation operators like dollar sign map and dollar sign dollar sign root, which I don't know what these are, but for someone in the Mongo space, you probably need these. And now it's just that much more compatible, which is always great. Uh, you can now store, query, and index geospatial data. This gives you the new ability of creating 2D sphere indexes, proximity querying, and of course, the ability to lose your keys in the meat space and the cyberspace now mm. uh, with all your geospatial needs. And of course, support for JDBC driver that enables connectivity to BI tools such as Tableau, MicroStrategy, and ClickView. Customers now also use JDBC driver to run SQL queries against their DocumentDB cluster from tools such as SQL Workbench. And DocumentDB is now a true NoSQL database with the support for JDBC and queries. So there you go. I love more compatible. I, I used to think that was a binary thing. If some of it was compatible, it wasn't. But now I guess it's like all document DBs are equal, but more some are more equal than others. More mm-hmm. equal. Yeah. <laughs> if, you're, if you're doing all the basic use cases, we probably have you covered. If you're using those weird edge cases, we probably don't have you covered. That's how I read those things when they say compatibility like that. Now I'm just trying to figure out if I can put a tile locator on you know, an index key so I don't lose it. Probably not. I mean, map isn't exactly an edge use case, but they, they say they say more compatible, so then maybe there was some weird some weirdness. Some, some customer had an issue. Yeah, well, I still love that SQL just reigns. No matter what you do with the database, everyone wants to talk to it in SQL. Yeah, let's make it a couple SQL Workbench so we can just do terrible select star queries. Perfect. So it's always a win. 
what I do in Athena. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, Athena can get a little tricky if you're not used to their syntax. Uh, I've been playing with it more and more, and I, I'm coming to love it and hate it all at the same time. Like mm-hmm. when you get the query right, it's magic. It's like yeah. you see it processing and it does its thing, and you're like, this is so cool. And then when you get it wrong, you're just like, I hate everything because troubleshooting this mm-hmm. is terrible. So, yeah. All right. Well, uh, determining whether you want to lift and shift your app, buy a new app, or transform and shift uh, your app, or whatever other method you want to migrate and modernize your cloud is, of course, very hard. And that's why you bring in partners like Foghorn and others. Yes. Uh, but now AWS is giving you the new Migration Hub Strategy Recommendations feature uh, so you can help automate the analysis of your application portfolios. The Strategy Recommendation Analyzer uh, uses your running apps to determine runtime environments and process dependencies, optionally analyzes source code and databases, and more. The data collected is reassessed uh, or assessed against a set of business objectives that you prioritize, such as license cost reduction, speed of migration, reducing operational overhead from using managed services, or modernizing your infrastructure using cloud-native technologies, and then it produces recommendations of viable paths to migrate and modernize your application. Uh, and honestly, looking at this demo, uh, this looks like 20 questions to me. It helps you make a decision and some basic analysis of running processes. I don't think this replaces Foghorn. Um, interesting, though, it does, you know, it is a nice way to remind you of all the migration tools that Amazon has that I forget about all the time, like the Windows Web Application Migration Assistant uh, or App to Container. Um, those are all things that it might recommend to you as part of the migration strategy. Yeah, I do think this is also interesting for existing apps uh, that you maybe just did a lift and shift on in Amazon. You can probably point this at this and figure out how to make them cloud native using this type of conversion. So that's pretty nice too. Uh, so I like the tool. I don't know that it replaces your need for a partner, but uh, I appreciate Amazon's effort here. I look at it kind of like the wafer tool, the well-architected framework tool where how great to have um, have some structure put around it, get some consistency across your workloads. Uh, I'm, I'm actually excited to use that and compare that to our current process for doing this and see what we're missing and and create these you know the, anytime you can create sort of a living breathing document instead of something that uh, you deliver as a deliverable and then customers put it on a shelf and never look at it again um measure yourself against it i think it's pretty cool so i'm excited to dig into this one actually it's interesting for me that this would come at, at this time right now when well, Ryan and I are both working on a kind of a very similar type of framework to, to decide what moves to the cloud and what doesn't move to the cloud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm like, the one we're working, we're working on is very, you know, financially based. And the, this, this Amazon one is perhaps, a, you know, financially based in their interests, I, I would expect. But I, I just would love to see the sales guys face when, when customers start adopting something like this, because you're literally deploying agents into your own environments. It goes off and reports back and then they can see exactly what they can sell you. They know exactly what you've got. They can, they can target the sales pitches to your specific circumstances. It's, um, I mean, uh, is it valuable? Sure, it's valuable. Uh, call me cynical though on on the um, motivations for providing such such tooling to people. <laughs> Come on, all you got to do is to gain all access to all that data, then just make a ton of recommendations that you fill in all the gaps with Lambda. Done. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Lambda is a solution for all problems. Cloud endure. It is missing a key component though. Which I'll be, I mean, I guess we shouldn't expect it, but the uh, yeah, you should leave that in the data center. Doesn't <laughs> right. seem to be an option anymore. It, it doesn't also give yeah. you the hey, you know that workload would run better in Google or Azure. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, remember when we talked about AWS bug busting program and the desire to fix one million co- lines of code and fix over one hundred million dollars in tech debt? Either you guys remember that? I remember talking about that. I didn't fix any lines of code, by the way. I remember kind of glazing over when you talked about it. 
Yeah, that's, I mean, that's every topic, so it's fine. <laughs> True. <laughs> uh, so apparently Amazon's back with an update. Uh, so they, you know, of course, if you're running the bug bus, you're doing it internally at your organization. But now they're bringing the bug bus to reInvent, which will go on from 10 a.m. on November 29th to 2 p.m. December 2nd. And I hope to win the world record for largest bug fixing competition from Guinness World Records. Uh, as part of the challenge, it is to be including a myriad of open source projects that developers will be able to patch and contribute to during the event, open to all developers either Java or Python knowledge, regardless of whether you're attending in person. With an array of prizes from exclusive hoodies and fly swatters to Amazon Echo Dots, uh, there's lots to do and lots to win. Plus the coveted title of, my company paid for me to go to this conference, but instead I did a bunch of free work for Amazon and open source software, and they gave me $1,500. <laughs> Amazon is dedicated, dedicating 500 square feet of space in the main exhibition hall for the people to bug bust in person, which is a huge concession from AWS as a 500 square foot booth is probably $500,000 sponsorship, uh, and you can pre-register now or at the event. I'm going to say they would rather have some people there do it looking like they were busy doing some busy work than have the empty spot because some vendor pulled out because of COVID. Right. That's, that's all I think. I was like, hmm, maybe sponsorships are hard to sell this year. Yeah. But I don't know about spending $1,600 on a ticket to go and do uh, do open source bug busting, though. Yeah. Especially if you're getting that expense by your, your employer. I'm sure they would love it. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. Next up is uh, Amazon RDS Custom for Oracle. Uh, managing databases on-premise or in EC2 requires customers to spend time and resources doing those terrible DBA tasks such as provisioning, scaling, patching, doing backups, and configuring HA. So hundreds of thousands of AWS customers use Amazon RDS because it takes care of the suck part of being a DBA. However, some legacy and package applications require customers to make specialized customizations to the underlying database and OS, such as the Oracle industry, specialized applications for healthcare or life sciences, and many others. These customers were locked out of the RDS world, but no more. With the GA of Amazon RDS Custom for Oracle, New capabilities that enable DBA to access and customize the database environment and OS. With RDS Custom for Oracle, you can now access and customize your database server, host, and operating system, for example, by applying special patches and changing the DB software settings for third-party apps. This moves several items from AWS's problem to now shared problems. Things like scaling and HA, you have to do it yourself. You have to configure your own DB backups. You have to configure your own DB software maintenance and OS maintenance. Ugh. And you know, this reminds me a lot of that Oracle cloud thing where they gave you VMware, but with no management. <laughs> it's cheaper than normal RDS, uh, but that's because they don't give you a license for it. Uh, you have to get your own Oracle license to use this capability. So uh, this is for those DBAs who really don't want to modernize uh, and can't because of some other product. But uh, you, this is really for a very select niche market, in my opinion. Yeah, what, what part do you get from RDS still? I mean, it sounds like they took everything out. You can create a database using an API, right? That's it? I, I mean, I think you can configure some stuff still through RDS. But yeah, like setting up HA, you have to do it yourself. Mm -hmm. Setting up, you know, patching your database, you have to do it yourself. Yeah. Or at least tell Amazon when to do it for you. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a bit weird for me. I mean, it's nice because it enables this use case, but it's, again, it's a very niche use case that you're using these yeah. specific apps that have to require, you know, like weird kernel tuning parameters of Oracle. That you know, and from Amazon's perspective, it's things that are hard to manage as a managed service because they want consistency um, across Oracle, not you know, snowflakes. Yeah, but I mean, backups and HA are like the two reasons I go to RDS. Yeah, it's almost it's almost like somebody signed a three-year contract for some RDS Oracle instances, then realized they couldn't use them. Yeah, and so they demand. So they demanded. I demand that you give me RDS custom so I can still use my my, my committed spend. Yeah. They committed. They committed Oracle license at that spend. So you know, it's kind of a bummer. Yeah, uh, yeah it's a it's an interesting use case. I I'd love to hear from somebody who's excited about this. To be honest, I think it'd be cool. I mean, this is the primary complaint I hear from people who are like, "Oh, we can't use RDS. We can't use RDS." 
And so like, while I don't want to do all those other things, the, the reality is that what people are doing is doing all of that plus more running on EC2. So this is better than that because, you know, those EC2 instances don't get patched. They don't get love. They, you know, none of that happens. Yeah. So I mean, if you, if, if Amazon's still doing the work, you're just controlling when the work is done. Like that's better. It's still not what I want, but it, at least it gives me that option of some management. I just, I, you know, having not used this yet, I can't really comment on it too much. But. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> yet. Yeah, exactly. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. All right, the next one is all about uh, deep learning. More apps than ever before utilize deep learning, apparently. From natural processing systems, recommendation engines, image recognition, video recognition, and more, can all benefit from highly quality, well-trained models. Of course, the process of building a model is apparently iterative, and for constructing the initial model, training it on the ground truth data to do some test inference, refine, and repeat, and deep learning models contain many layers, hence the name, each of which transforms outputs of the previous layer. The training process is math and processor intensive and places demand on just about every part of the system, including the GPU or training accelerator, the network and local and network storage. And this raises the cost and complexity of your deep learning jobs. So Amazon is here to help you with the new DL1 instance powered by Gaudi accelerators from Habana Labs. The DL1.24xlarge has the following specs. And this is the only way you can buy this, by the way. Eight Gaudi accelerators with a total of 256 gigabytes of high bandwidth accelerator memory and high-speed RDMA-powered communication between accelerators. 768 gigs of system memory, enough to hold a very large set of training data in memory. Four terabytes of local NVMe storage configured as four one-terabyte volumes. Uh, Intel Cascade Lake processor with 96 vCPUs and 400 gigabytes of networking throughput. The Gaudi Accelerator itself are custom designed for ML training, have a ton of cool interesting features and attributes, and support a range of data types that I don't understand at all, like BF16 and FP32. I don't know what that is. Uh, generalized Matrix Multiplier Engine or GEM. I thought we weren't trying to multiply the matrix, but apparently we are. And then tensor processing cores or TPCs, uh, specializing in L VLU SIMD, very long structural word, single instruction, multiple data processing units for ML. And the TPCs are all, of course, C programmable. Available in US East 1 and US West 2 in on-demand spot and reserve saving plan options, all for the low, low price of the on-demand $9,570.60. And we do have a quote here from David Brown, Vice President of Amazon EC2 at AWS. The use of machine learning has skyrocketed. One of the challenges with training machine learning models, however, is that it's computationally intensive and can get expensive as customers refine and retrain their models. AWS already had the broadest choice of powerful compute for any machine learning project or application, and the addition of DL1 instances featuring Gaudi accelerators provides the most cost-effective alternative to GPU-based instances in the cloud to date. Their optimal combination of price and performance make it possible for customers to reduce the cost to train, train more models, and innovate faster. So I would have assumed, given the amount of words I didn't understand in that release, that I wouldn't be able to afford this instance. And while it's not cheap, it's not as expensive as, you know, what I would expect for something like this. It's pretty crazy. 
yeah, I thought it was much more affordable than I thought it would be as well. <laughs> when I saw when I did the calculation, I was like, oh, this is gonna cost me like fifty dollars an hour. And I did the mm-hmm. math and I was like, oh, this isn't too bad. The GPU boxes are more expensive than this. Yeah. I mean, especially since most, you know, most of the workloads here are gonna be ephemeral, right? Spin up, do your com- computation and spin down, right? You're not gonna be running it every hour of the day. How many developers do you think are going to spin one up, do one test, and leave it running for like three years? Uh, a lot. <laughs> at least three at our day jobs. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess it solves a problem of, of lack of availability of, of um, NVIDIA CPUs, though. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to buy a decent graphics card, and I'm sure the cloud <laughs> providers are suffering horrendously with not being able to scale their machine learning instances the way they wanted to because of the chip shortage. Chip shortage. You don't. You don't think the chip shortage is caused by them? And in some ways, I felt like they're probably buying massive quantities of these things, and they're actually have a higher priority. But I don't know. Mm. I don't know about caused, but yeah. I think um, Ethereum and other crypto mining probably led a, led to that a lot. But I also don't see a whole lot for sale on eBay anymore. But I mean, it's nice that there's a decent alternative to Nvidia, which is comes in at a significantly lower price point, more energy efficient, and that's ultimately what people care about at the end of the day. Is total cost of ownership and if it's cheaper for me to rent by the hour then great if it's better for the environment then great never really thought about it as better than the environment because you, you know it's it's in the news you know a lot now is the the environmental impact of all this compute and you know renting it you know you can be an you know ecological champion i like it unless you're renting it to make bitcoin then you're part of the bad group <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to GCP uh, this week. In June, they announced their new Tau VMs for their Compute Engine VM offering with an option that delivers the best price performance among leading clouds for scale-out workloads with the T2D now available in preview. This week, a company called Foronix published their independent testing validating Google's claims on price performance leadership. Foronix, a site devoted to Linux hardware reviews and benchmarking, put T2D to test with its benchmarking suite, and Foronix details the results of the benchmark between the T2D and Amazon Graviton-based instances. And their quote here from Michael Larabelle, founder of Veronix. Across a wide range of tests carried out, the Google Cloud Tau VMs consistently showed great value and performance per dollar. The testing shows that the Tau T2D VMs deliver on average 50% higher performance for 8 vCPU VMs and 4% higher performance for 32 vCPU VMs across a variety of tests, including image processing, database, video codec, compile time, compression, and cryptography. Uh, and then apparently Google is so excited about this that they're also announcing you can now use GKE to use your T2D VMs uh, in a more... Uh, higher levels of reliability, security, and scalability. Of course, the Tau VMs are based on the AMD Epic 7003 Milan processor. And the Graviton 2 was announced in 2019. And so I went and did some research. And so, you know, this is basically comparing a chip that started development in 2019 and shipped in March this year with a chip that probably started development in sometime in 2016, 2017 and shipped in 2019. And so it's a little disingenuous in this testing, in my opinion. Uh, but, you know, now I just have a prediction for uh, reinvo- uh, reInvent that Graviton 3 is coming. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the other issue with it is is that they're not available yet. You can you can spin up Graviton two in many many regions right now and run real workloads. This is in preview. <laughs> it's like you can't use them yet. It's it's hardly it's hardly the comparison that I'd be I'd be selling right now. But I mean, Graviton were when they came out. What were they like forty percent better price performance mm-hmm. um, to your standard Intel based chips, and then these forty percent. On top of that, it's pretty. It's pretty cool how Moore's Law continues to blow the doors off of price performance. Yeah, well, and you can imagine 
you know, just based on what Apple's doing with their M1 Pro and M1 Max, you know, that's a brand new chip. They design, they started designing that last year, you know, after the first M1 release, and that's and they're crushing most benchmarks of most AMD processors on the market today, uh, and most GPUs on the market today, frankly. Um, so if if Amazon, you know, and I assume they probably started working on Graviton three as soon as they shipped Graviton two, you know, potentially they're going to have a massive leap in performance again this year as well if they ship a new version. So it's just you know it's a weird arms race for GCP to get into because now you're just going to be fighting this this TikTok battle of you know wh- whose processor came out first and they're going to crush these benchmarks and then yeah AMD and Intel are going to catch up in some way and try to do better because they have to to compete and it's just going to go back and forth and it's just you know like all benchmarks here we don't like them because they're just silly and you know who knows what these tests are they run they're great for marketing yeah marketing they're great for marketing but people don't care I don't think people care that much I really don't think people care that much we've still got people using like C3 instances or C4 instances, and we're up to C6, C6Gs and things now. People will spin up their workloads. They don't care that much. Yeah, I think in, gen- in general, you're right. But people want to think that they care. So this does this does become important marketing, right? Like, it becomes a big deal yeah. when you're competing for a new business, you know, because Google is going to throw this out there and say, hey, our, you know, yeah, Amazon's saying ARM is great and all that, but our chips are better and they're AMD-based. You don't have to recompile your app. You know, there, there's a bunch of ways that Google can use this to their advantage in, in a sales opportunity. But you're right. Once you once you sold and committed, are you really changing these instance types that often? That maybe doesn't happen. And if I'm having to justify to my board why I spend a million dollars or committed, you know, millions of dollars and and commit spend, like, I'll be like, but it's forty percent higher performance. Ta-da! It still sits there ninety percent idle, but it's yeah. But it's, and the board's like, what did that do for the business? How did that make us more money? And you're like, I don't know. It's forty percent better. Yay! <laughs> yeah, it's I. I wonder the of the room. I wonder if there'll come a time where where we actually get kind of efficiency reflected in the cost of cloud. I mean, right now you rent it by the hour, and you can use it zero, or you can use it one hundred percent, and one hundred percent surely costs more. You know, costs more to run power wise, but. I wonder if I wonder if we'll be incentivized to actually be more efficient through through cost savings. I mean, hmm. Amazon d- attempted that with the RI process they had a while ago, where you had you picked low, medium, or high utilization, you know, RIs, and you had different pricing for that, and that was a nightmare to manage, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, and then Google, you know, they have the thing where if you keep the server running for more than X number of days in a month, they give you a discounted rate, you know, which encourages you to keep the server up longer. I guess I, I, there are some games there, but I don't think anyone's very sophisticated at it. Yet, you know, counter argument, you are seeing Azure and Google come out with ways to measure sort of your ecological impact of your compute from business. And so you can kind of see the building blocks maybe starting to form. I don't know how they would monetize that exactly or how they would incentivize, but. Well, they're not monetizing it. You know, we actually talked about it last week with Rob and um, Ben because uh, there was two announcements about price, you know, mm-hmm. you know, your footprint reporting a new product from Google and then some more stuff from uh, Azure as mm-hmm. well. But, you know, like, the companies who want it, are they desperately want to show that they're being good environmental citizens. And it's a marketing thing for them to show that to the market. Um, so that's the big driver right now. But, you know, long term, you know, I assume it becomes more and more of a deal if, you know, taxing comes out on, you know, emissions and, you know, more greenhouse gas stuff comes out that is bad. You know, we'll see more. But right now you're already getting advantage of a pretty efficient cloud infrastructure. More efficient than running them out of my closet, just what I did before. Yeah, I mean, but it was a good heating way to heat your house. So mm-hmm. It was. True. And to drown out the kids, to be honest. <laughs> Side benefits. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, let's move on from Graviton 3 and Tau VM chips and talk about no code. Everyone's favorite topic. Woo! Woo! Uh, so we briefly talked about at Google uh, Next recap that Google had announced some AppSheet integration to Gmail. 
allowing you to build custom-built no-code applications created in AppSheet directly in your inbox as a dynamic email. Uh, and so this is actually the first use case and walkthrough, so go check this out. But uh, basically walk you through how they created a form to get a vacation approval. And so it's a very simple form. You basically dictated who your approvers are going to be. It sends out a workflow for your email process. Uh, and it's, it's actually pretty impressive. Uh, so I, w- I actually could see something like this in Gmail being effective for really quick, like, hey, I need to get like what, everyone's lunch order or I need to you know, arrange a hotels for a team going to an event or something like that. I can see there's some really interesting use cases enabled by the email access part of it. I'm still not a big fan of low code in general, but I, at least that's what I can get behind. I was going to say, mark your calendars, October 27th, where Justin turned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I mean, if low code is honey code, I'm still, I'm still out. Still out. But you put it in Gmail and I'm like, okay, now I can see some, I can see some use cases. That's all I'm saying. Well, before you went and made it all logical, I was gonna, I had jokes about you know Exchange have and IMAP having server side rules that would automatically delete my emails for forever. Like, why do I need a new solution for that? But I can now you've gotten one up me. <laughs> well, to be fair, it isn't, it is not a new solution. I mean, Lotus Notes was doing you know Domino was basically doing exactly the same thing in well early two thousands, mid two thousands. Well, I maybe? I avoided the. Uh, monkey of Lotus Notes in all of my jobs. Yeah. So I don't... Like, I knew, like, like any sane person. Like, I knew I could do this magical <laughs> thing with forms, that kind of stuff, but, like, did it take a developer to do that, or could I do that as a, a layman user in Lotus Notes? I definitely think it was a developer. Yeah, that, that was my feeling, too. Like, yes, you could create really cool portal stuff, you could really... You know, there's a couple other evil programs in that time that did the same thing, like, first-class email for Mac and a couple others. But you could do some really interesting, like, basic database functions inside of uh, an email, but it took a developer to do all that work. No, it's, yeah, I guess it wasn't no code, but it was still it was still designed to be a document, sort of a, a data driven application with a with a form front end. So, but cool. Now we can now we can send. Um, I wonder if they'll they'll support this for people who aren't kind of in the org. I mean, uh, I'd like to think that we can define a form maybe and or, or something and send it out to you know, to people we know to listeners who aren't actually belonging to an org that that pays for this as a service and have our form kind of pop up in anybody's Gmail. Yeah, I mean, I, I assume. I assume that's just a web include, right? Of some sort, an HTML include inside of email. So you could, in theory, send it to Outlook or send it to any other client as long as it supports HTML-based emails, right? That's what I assume, but I haven't played with it yet. So maybe maybe you're right. <laughs> New show title, The Cloud Pod Spams the Crap Out of Everybody. Yeah. <laughs> just think of how many new like event invitation systems we could build or, you know, I don't know. Yeah. No, I, I mean... Annoyingly, this is one of the things I will use. So great, Google, making me use a no-code solution. Now I feel dirty. Mm-hmm. Oh, Have wow. you used Google Forms? Yeah, I've used it a few yeah. times. Yeah, yeah. Curious how it's going to be much different. Yeah. It's got to be. I mean, Google Forms, though, is, you know, it's stuck in the access era of design for a database. Uh, I'm hoping that with them buying AppSheet that that was going to get replaced. It's kind of my, my hope there. But, you know, Google's product strategy is sometimes hard to see <laughs> from the outside. All right. Well, if you are trying to improve the speed of data parallel training on GPU clusters, uh, Vertex AI is launching a new reduction server, a faster gradient aggregation algorithm developed at Google to double the algorithm bandwidth for all reduced operations. A reduction server enables distributed ML training jobs run with efficient bandwidth utilization and completes the training job faster. And that's all I can say about this because after this, I got lost. You know that feeling when you sort of start to lose touch with the technology or... Or realm of technology, <laughs> mm-hmm. and you're like, I better do a project soon because this is starting to get embarrassing. Like, I think I'm there with some of this stuff. I'm like, ah, uh, I don't know why this is 
news. I should yeah. probably know why I, this is news. You know, I, I definitely start to feel like, you know, maybe we need to find people who actually do MLAI and then we just have a sideshow like once a month that just mm-hmm. does, here's what happened in MLAI and it'll be a bonus episode that we just, that some other hosts that know more about this talk about and we just kind of, yeah. like, we learn from them. I agree. It's either that or we have to develop some sort of machine learning to choose the topics or something that we can, you know, incorporate into the cloud pot that'll force us to use this. Yeah, I mean, I think it'll be really easy to learn the the tools that the cloud providers are offering. I think the hard thing would be you can't go to a two week boot camp to learn math. That's that's (laughs) true. You got to go to college for for four years of postgraduate advanced math. Well, honestly, the MLAI technology is the easy part. Figure out the data set you're going to use, and then the question you're going to ask of the data set is the actual hard part. So, yes, you're right. That's the part you get in college with math and think about these models in ways that I don't, my brain doesn't crack quite yet. So, well, uh, Forrest Brazil uh, was a guest on TCP Talks uh, and was the senior director of content and community at A Cloud Guru, uh, as well as was a AWS serverless hero, uh, is now at Google. He's, he's turned the tables on this. And he's had his first blog post this week um, as he's been learning GCP. Uh, and what he has seen in the first few weeks of the jobs. And he talks about the nine things he has loved so far with Google Cloud Identity and environments. And I thought we'd share that with you guys real quickly here. So first of all, he, uh, he likes the fact that you are you. Uh, so every user is just a Google account, personal or corporate, that works across projects. Uh, so very low uh, barrier to entry, uh, which makes it feel like it's a frictionless experience, which he really appreciated. No non-IAM root accounts. Uh, Google Cloud, of course, has been designed from the ground up to avoid the chicken-egg problem of requiring manually configured super user that sits outside the rest of the identity management infrastructure. Uh, project discovery for humans. Uh, projects are organized very simply into projects, folders, and organizations uh, baked into the console like browsing a file system versus having to know a very archaic uh, account ID and a single sign-on portal to switch between those account IDs. <laughs> Billing that protects you from yourself. Uh, and that's in the project context, gives you a logical container for the cost of the resources contained within it, and that your billing is entities enti- managed super separately from the project itself. So you can delete a project and feel sure that all associated resources are gone and no longer racking up charges. And it also has a free tier that's really free. And when you try to leave the free tier, it asks you with a big button that says, yes, it's okay to charge me, which he really likes and is now his go-to recommendation for anyone learning the cloud so they don't get surprised by the Amazon $10,000 bill problem. Uh, your organization structure does not equal your billing structure. And this is uh, because billing is decoupled from the organizational root. So permission inheritance is a separate design decision from chargeback as it should be. And this keeps Google Cloud from converging or, or keeps it converging towards Conway's law. Uh, SSO that works. Uh, want to use the SCLI? You get SSO. You want to do between uh, projects? SSO. Cloud Shell? SSO. None of the weird, you know, third-party SSO tools or trying to get Amazon SSO to work or any of that weirdness or finding the CLI tool that your platform engineering team built you to help you switch between accounts. All of those things are now available for you. One group to rule them all, of course, remembering how user entities are just Google accounts. You can now use groups to manage group access to IAM roles. So that's super nice. Uh, never lose your place in other clouds. Uh, you know, if you get timed out or the timeout of doom, as he calls it, your console session expires and you're left on generic error screen. And it's up to you to figure out how to rebuild your contacts from scratch, starting with remembering what account you used in the first place. Uh, in the Google world, it's easy as bookmarking a single URL. So you can just go right back to that URL every time and get to the same thing. No mystery, no logouts, no redirects. And then uh, he says progressive complexity for the win, uh, which in his experience has been common for cloud providers to design most of their account features for organizations. And if you're an independent developer, you get more exposure to dangerous bills, less access to helpful SO features, and generally must fend for yourself in a world that wasn't really created with you in mind. And so this is just about the developer experience journal. So interesting take. Uh, I also will be learning more about the Google world. So I'm excited about that. But uh, I, I look forward to this, this world of simple IAM because 
it's complex. I mean, we've said it for a long time now that Google coming to the market where they did, they it was very easy to just take all the major gripes yep. of AWS and Azure and then just improve on them. And they banged it out of the park. So kudos to them because they, you know, it is a much better user experience than than the other two cloud providers, no doubt. Like it is, I only, you know, really have access to my own personal account, but just playing around with those things, like it, it is logically laid out and it is easy to discover, which I appreciate because I'm probably doing it because I can't sleep and it's three in the morning. And, you know, it's nice. And so that's cool. I wish that it wasn't as hard for the other providers to sort of catch up and, and build this in, but, you know, building on top of layers and layers of tech debt. Yeah. Such slows a, you down. I am such a foundational piece to all these clouds. It's it's very difficult yeah. to replace. Yep. All right. And then the last thing, uh, it was BigQuery Omni, which is a multi-cloud analytics service that lets data teams break down data silos by using BigQuery to securely and cost-effectively analyze data across clouds, is now uh, available for you on AWS and in Q4 uh, for select customers in Azure. Uh, customers will be able to perform cross-cloud analytics from a single pane of glass across Google Cloud, Amazon Web Services, and Azure. Uh, as long as we deploy the Omni infrastructure to do so. Yeah, this is this has been floating around our Slack channels with our engineers. I think it's uh, pretty lead you down this uh, this sort of looking at the end of the road and seeing all the providers offering all of their software on every other provider's infrastructure. And at some point, maybe that infrastructure really gets to where it's really commodity commoditized. Yeah. So you think they put this together just because they got you know sick of everyone processing their AWS bills on BigQuery because that's what everyone does. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only logical place to do it. That you know, right? it's a curve file of you know a bajillion lines. What can do that? BigQuery, perfect. Yeah. yeah. Excel can't, and Amazon doesn't give you a tool. So. Nope. So they actually, I mean, is it is it BigQuery on those clouds, or is it BigQuery yeah. in, in GCP reaching no. out and grabbing grabbing that data? No, no. So it. it we talked about this when it first got announced. Uh, so basically, you deploy a set of Omni infrastructure in those clouds. And so um, some portion of the data processing happens inside that cloud, and then it sends back the result set to the to the main master uh, in Google and then puts that into the visualization layer for you. But uh, it can do it on the cloud itself, or you can actually ship the data over if you want to as well. But uh, the, the normal use case with this is you deploy some set of infrastructure. And it's a, it's a portion of the BigQuery infrastructure you're basically deploying in AWS or you're deploying in Azure. Hmm. Okay, I guess it's it's yeah. great for people who realize they've got so much data in S3 that they can't possibly afford to move it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Oh, that I, that was not lost on Google when they announced this. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, a, it was a solution of like, hey, we can give you the awesomeness of BigQuery without you have to take the data cost of moving all your data. Mm-hmm. And we win because you now see the awesomeness of BigQuery and then your next project, you start thinking, hey, Google might be the right way to go. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, you just start writing that data to a different place all of a sudden until it slowly ages out. Yep. Yeah, or your data set might be owned or co-owned by a partner or a collaborator who's in AWS and you want to use your experience and capabilities with different tools like BigQuery. Mm-hmm. Yep. For listeners of the CloudPod, you know that I have no love for Microsoft Active Directory, which is why I'm excited to tell you about the leading cloud directory platform, JumpCloud. JumpCloud makes it easy to solve today's IT challenges by unifying device and user management through a single pane of glass, enabling you to securely manage your users and devices and perform common tasks like onboarding and offboarding remote workers. With JumpCloud, you no longer need to implement an on-premise Active Directory infrastructure or additional tooling to scope a user's access, and you can ensure that the user is coming from trusted devices and networks. 
Enabling Jump Cloud Zero Trust Solutions improves the security and compliance of your network, ensuring users have access only to the services they need when they need them. To start your organization's move to a modern, secure hybrid work model, try Jump Cloud for free today at cloud.jumpcloud.com slash the cloudpod. That's cloud.jumpcloud.com slash the cloudpod. Moving right along to Azure, uh, there's apparently a new public preview of Visual Studio Code for the web. Uh, the public preview of Visual Studio Code for the web is a new web-based code editor that runs entirely in your browser with no install. And you can find this at vscode.dev. Uh, supports code on your local machine or hosted on GitHub or Azure repos. Great for making and committing lightweight changes. Uh, there are no compute resources, though, so you won't be able to do any builds, runs, or debugs. Uh, but you can use the integrated terminal to get to that. Or you can just move to GitHub Codespaces, which gives you all of those things for a low monthly fee uh, through that process. So this is the light version of GitHub Codespaces. Why they confuse it with a different name again after we talked about how they solved the naming problem previously, I don't know. But that's that's the Azure way. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I did find a magic quadrant that actually lists Azure as number one. Ooh. It's for industrial IoT, though, so I'm sorry. Uh, and Google doesn't even show up on this list, and Amazon is apparently only a challenger. And Amazon's only a challenger because apparently they don't have verticalized solutions for manufacturing industrial-specific use cases. IoT core isn't available in enough regions and offers fewer capabilities at the edge and on-premise. And so I read that and I say, well, those are kind of BS. But that's fine. You know, it's Gartner. What can you do? Also give it six months. Yeah, right. exactly. Like, like yeah. <laughs> uh, Microsoft leads the quadrant with uh, flexible business solutions powered by Azure, Azure IoT platform services and AI ML. They apparently have a strong baked-in security approach that encompasses a full-stack asset to enterprise application approach. They clearly have not seen the recent security issues at Azure. <laughs> Oops. Microsoft has a global ISV and system integrator partner ecosystem that can help you get this stuff going. Uh, but they do point out that the IoT pricing is complex. You do need to bring a partner in to supplement Microsoft, and Azure IoT can be used to enable solutions in some verticals, but you might have to buy industry-specific solutions via Dynamics or a partner, which is kind of what they blamed AWS for, but AWS got more dinging for that. So apparently they didn't suck up enough to the analyst. That's how I see it from the Amazon side. But uh, there you go. Amazon, Microsoft, leader in the Magic Quadrant for IoT, for industry. Congrats. 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 <laughs> this never happens. I had to, I had to talk mm-hmm. about it. Uh, apparently, they also surveyed uh, a set of customers uh, in the 2021 IoT Signals report, and Microsoft identified five trends on the people they surveyed. So again, this is a highly targeted survey, <laughs> and apparently 90% of organizations surveyed are adopting IoT. Shocker. <laughs> COVID-19 continues to accelerate IoT across industries. Uh, reducing technical complexity helps speed IoT time to market. Uh, IoT security is a major priority for everyone. And IoT adopters integrate merging technologies with their systems is why Microsoft says IoT on their platform and their signals report is super important. That's all I can say about that, too. I, I got nothing else. Not a single customer name on there. Why would you talk about customers? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they only surveyed three well, people. <laughs> I mean, I, I would have expected if they're going to be you know, leading Ghana's Magic Quadrant that there'd be some kind of company logos, some kind of amazing manufacturing business. I don't know, kind of, or more than one. More than one vertical since Amazon got dinged for not supporting multiple verticals. This is bizarre. I mean, I how do you, how do you I interview think, three people and come up with 90%? No, no, I don't know. I don't know that it was three I was people. wondering. I was trying to do the math. I, I, it yeah. was a joke, and it, it, you guys who do math, it, it hit poorly. Sorry. They interview only 10 people. No, I, I thought it was pretty nine good. Out, nine out of 10, you know. So there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, yeah, I, I did click through the report a little bit. Uh, they said there was 3,000 survey participants. Uh, 
in the in this space. So you know, it's it's not a, it's not a small population, but uh, you know, a lot of the countries were. Uh, you know, Spain, Italy, Netherlands, Belgium, and Australia were all big uh, participants in the survey, according to this. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting, but yeah, there's really no mention of customer use cases or customer solutions they've solved or how people are using it. And part of that is manufacturing is a bit of a weird industry where people, you know, people are very secretive about things they're doing because it could be used competitively against them. And so um, that may be part of it. But there's, you know, there's ITDM and power and utilities is listed in the report and there's a couple other quotes, but they're very minor and they're all utilities from what I can see. I mean, it makes sense. We joke about it, but it makes sense. Pre, I mean, if you go back 10 years, sort of pre-massive cloud adoption, what operating systems do people have available to build IoT devices? I mean, there's you know, real-time operating systems and things, and then there's little Windows appliances in boxes. I'm sure. Zigbee, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. I mean, sure, Linux was around, but as far as the types of businesses that would gather mass amounts of data and then want to report on it with some kind of BI tool. I can see why Windows had a huge head start in IoT. Yeah, I can see why uh, they have yeah. a big head start too. All right. Uh, so last week, Rob uh, mentioned how sad he was that we didn't have any Oracle news. And so, you know, that kind of like lodged in my brain through the weekend. And I was like, you know, I haven't actually seen any Oracle news in my RSS feed to even consider for the show. And so then I did some research and I realized I haven't got anything in that feed since June. Oops. And so then I went to the website and realized they changed the website again uh, and they broke all their legacy RSS feeds uh, and they don't have RSS feeds anymore. So now they have a newsletter. So I had to subscribe to the newsletter and I thought about going through, you know, four or five months worth of announcements to find some to talk about today, but I just couldn't be bothered. So that's where we're at. Uh, so hopefully going forward, we'll have some new Oracle news for you guys when they do something that we can make fun of or that seems interesting. One of the two. Uh, as long as I remember to read the newsletter. So, you know, all bets Oof. are off on that. Good luck with that one. But uh, <laughs> if Oracle people <laughs> yeah. are listening, you should probably fix your RSS feeds because that's how I collect the news for the show. Yeah, someone mm. needs to write a uh, Oracle newsletter to RSS Bridge for us. Yeah, exactly. There are those websites that, you know, will we'll, uh, scrap, scrape a website and then turn it into an RSS feed for you. But I tried to use one of those and, of course, Google, Oracle WAF blocked it because it's a bot. <laughs> and I was like, oh. so that that was uh, that failed. But uh, there you go. So, anyways, that's uh, that's it for new news this week. <laughs> and hopefully, we'll maybe have something to talk about at Oracle in the future. So there you go. If we could sum up the last four months of Oracle news, it's like it's still expensive. The network's cool, but no one uses it. I mean, there are people who use it. They just happen to be you know owe Oracle bajillions of dollars, and so it's the best way to get out of spending more money with Oracle is by moving your money. Dozens. To there are literally dozens. Dozens of us. Dozens. <laughs> All right, Peter, take us to the lightning round. All right, let's start by introducing support for AWS KMS customer managed keys for encrypting artifacts by Amazon CloudWatch Synthetics. And all I can think is, why does your synthetic need to get an artifact from a website to then you know, why is that your use case for testing? Like, it's such a weird thing. And then now you're concerned about it enough that you want to encrypt it because it's sensitive data. This is not a weird, this is not a common use case for synthetics. It definitely seems like a snake eating its own tail. And, you know, just so that I can not get any monitoring data. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's for, maybe if you need to authenticate with an API with a JSON payload, maybe that's what you'd encrypt with. I, again, this is lost on mm-hmm. me. I don't get it. Yeah. Yeah, instead of pasting the uh, the token right there into the into the URL. Yep, <laughs> that's how I roll, Jonathan. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> username, colon, password at mysecretapi.com. Yep, there you go. Yeah, awesome. Shh, giving away. 
<laughs> AWS Security Hub adds support for cross-region aggregation of findings to simplify how you evaluate and improve your AWS security posture. First, they gave you cross-account, and then they give you cross-region. Like, can you guys just get on the same page that security people want a single pane of glass and just mm-hmm. give... That's what Security Hub should be. There should be no concept of regions. Come on. Yeah. It's an army of analysts looking at the things that turn red. Yep. That's it. Yes. Like, you clearly misunderstood your customer in this space. These, these features are so important that they're coming out you know, a year or two years after Security Hub, after people complained, or, or buying tools that would aggregate all these security hubs from all the regions and all the different accounts. Uh, I like the cross-region aggregations, though. I don't want to get the same bug report 10 times because I've got 10 regions. Yeah. Well, no, I agree with that. I agree, but, you know, but, you know yeah. right now, that's why before this feature, you would have 10 different accounts with 10 different alerts. Now you can at least pull them all to a single region and aggregate them together. I think we're all just mad that it's been like, you know, a year and a half to two years. <laughs> it's been like, oh, yeah, no, same thing in that region, too. Yeah, it's because it's in all the regions. Yep. Oh, the root password is still not in, you know, I still don't have a two-factor code on the root password mm-hmm. in all the regions. Shocker. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Since there's only one yeah. of them. Mm-hmm. Right. Amazon RDS Proxy now supports Amazon RDS for MySQL version 8.0. All this tells me is serverless MySQL uh, is coming for 8, which I'm super excited about. Because nice. I think this is a key requirement to make that work. This Amazon is now I know. Oh, Sorry. Oh. Yeah. Now, never mind. Go. No. Nah. Uh, I was just realizing how Justin, you know, always does the predictions. Now I'm realizing that he's, you know, building up months in advance this knowledge base, mm-hmm. and I only have like 15 seconds of running memory, so I'm probably not going to win again this year. Right. It's, a bit, it's a bit of 3D. It's a bit of 3D chess. You got to kind of put all the pieces together and la- it layers <laughs> on top of each other. But I mean, I'm trying to give you you guys tips all all year. Mm-hmm. He's actually no, giving true. them to us. You could use this one. You're right okay, at that. I'm trying. Mm-hmm. No, I'll, I'll finally take notes and then I'll lose the draft. So, you know, yeah, really. can't can't win. Which is coming up very quickly, guys. Just, I know. <laughs> like two weeks from now. Yeah. Intent, do your homework. Well, Amazon QuickSight launches Spice Incremental Refresh. Is that the way my CEO or CFO reacted when they saw the report? They're spicy? Or is that an actual thing in reports? Well, it's all caps. It's all caps. I thought this was just to capitalize on, on Dune coming out. Right, so it's like, how do we how do we do marketing synergy? Spice, Ooh. super fast parallel in memory calculation engine. Uh, I like I like the attitude of how you see how you view the report better. Like you're spicy about it. I get it. You're unhappy Ooh. about that bill. It's fine. I, I totally give you the point, Ryan, for the, the <laughs> Dune, Dune reference. I, I got the Dune reference too. I just wasn't trying to give it to him. Yeah. So it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's go. AWS Systems Manager. Oops, sorry. Amazon SageMaker Autopilot adds support for time series data. So when I'm doing, you know, machine learning, I want to do it on autopilot. So this makes total sense. On a, on a sequential time, you understand. I mean, between the DL1 and this type of stuff, like the, you know, I think the the Terminator company, Skynet, is coming from Amazon. Like they have enough <laughs> of the technology now. Like just take over a few few regions, and now you have enough compute power to take over the world. That's how I see. And Jonathan and Ryan, I'll, I'll be on an outage bridge. Like, why we can't get to our servers? And Skynet's yeah. taking over the compute. Sorry, I can't help you. Yeah, that's good. Right I can see it already. It's also pilot. You just you gotta like keep your hand on the keyboard while it does the calculations. Otherwise, it nags you to <laughs> to pay attention to to the workload. <laughs> that's a Tesla joke. If I ever heard one. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, AWS Systems Manager Maintenance Windows now supports defining 
custom cutoff behavior for tasks. The fact that they even think you can cut off a Windows maintenance activity without destroying the operating system is very cute. So yeah. like, if it doesn't work in the time window, sorry, you got to keep going. Because if you try to stop it now, it all is lost. Yeah, what is the custom behavior? Oh, it just shuts down everything. <laughs> Corrupts the OS, all kinds of fun things. <laughs> well, how about disabling default reverse DNS rules with Route 53 Resolver? This is one of those user stories where they forgot the D part of CRUD. They're like, oh, we were supposed to create a CRUD list. Oh, okay, thanks. CRA? CRA? They just delivered the CRA, yeah. and now they're giving you the D. That's how it goes. Amazon CloudFront adds support for client IP addresses and connection port header. It's only been, uh, people have been casting for this one for, you know, six years. <laughs> so thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. Well, now you don't have to implement that horrible auth strategy you were doing. Yeah. Just be like, no. My home address. Here we go. Yeah. It gets local zones are now open in Las Vegas, New York City, and Portland. So I have two theories on why it's these three, but I, I can't figure out why it's all three. So it's the mob or the mafia is why it's in New York City and Las Vegas. And it's protesters, why it's in Portland and New York City. But I can't I can't figure out how to put them all together. Like why all three of these regions open at the same time. And so that's where I'm at on this one. But I you know, appreciate Las Vegas local zone will be available for reInvent because uh, all of our compute can run there for the vent. So that's nice. Yep. So you've missed the obvious. Oh, okay. Perfect. What links all these three cities together? Uh, hipsters. hipsters. It's hipsters. Oh, hipsters. Okay. <laughs> I thought maybe you were going to say they're blue. They're blue like cities. My beard with my glasses, but you know. <laughs> I thought maybe you were going there blue cities, but then like Las Vegas isn't really. I mean, it's sort of blue, mm-hmm. but the rest of the states are very red. Like I don't. Yeah, I was trying to work out the connections, but there's no logic to this. I mean, with with, with AWS. HQ in Portland, you, you think they may have a need for some kind of cloud compute close by? Well, I mean, the fact that there's not a region in Washington close to the headquarters at all has always blown my mind. So That is kind of strange. <laughs> like, why wouldn't you put one in Columbus, Ohio, or Columbus, uh, or off the Columbia River over on the east side of Washington? Mm-hmm. That would be very close to you. Yeah. yeah. Where all the other data centers yeah, where are. where all the other data centers are. <laughs> and then, right. you guys, and then yeah. it could be the tire fire data center because it's one that no one uses. Because it's just Amazon. <laughs> Maybe they just, after they picked Oregon, there's no need to put one that close yeah. to Oregon. I'm sure. Uh, to wrap it up with AWS Fault Injection Simulator now supports spot interruptions. A major use case. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Like the, it's the, the actual product, right? The actual product is supposed to fail. Yeah. yeah. So you, you can now test it and validate that it doesn't work. I, I mean, again, is spot interruption a big thing? I thought they kind of fixed that with the predictive market a while ago, but it wasn't as impactful as it used to be. They did not. And Fair so enough. many people, <laughs> so many people are running spot on a hope and a prayer that it doesn't get taken away. I'm, I'm, I got my hand raised. Yeah. There's a couple, there's a couple instances. I'm like, eh, it'll be fine. Yeah. Just a little bit of data loss. It's still good. It's still good. Yeah. The fleet, the fleet is your solution yeah. to this yeah. problem. Yeah, uh, I mean, I mean, it's like it, you know, Peter's internet tonight. It's been very spotty, so it's, it's fine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, I was gonna make a joke, but you know, how do you inject fault with such you know spotty spotty company? <laughs> I had to pivot oh. last minute because Justin stole mine. <laughs> <laughs> I got I got to say, uh, uh, that's almost a minus one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'd understand that. I would. But it was okay. however, 
I never, I never saw Dune, so I have to trust Jonathan and say that you must deserve the point for that joke because it was way over my head. Nice. Yeah, it's. I mean, if there's any connectivity to Dune from Amazon, I would go. I'd say sure. But okay. mm-hmm. I mean, the reference so number one, the original Dune has Kyle MacLachlan and Sting. Need I say more? Yes. The new Dune looks amazing. Yeah, I can't no, wait. You'll see that this yeah. week. That's yeah. It's also got Patrick Stewart in, and you know what? He looks exactly the same age in 1984 or whatever it was, mm. as he did like 20 years later. So what's going on with that guy? I think he's the a wizard. Clark syndrome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Well, no, well, well earned point, Ryan. I'll, I'll let it go. <laughs> there are things coming up once again. Uh, Rob last week explained to us what the FinOps Foundation is. Uh, for those of you who were tired of me trying to explain what it is, uh, go listen to last week's episode because Rob did a much better job than I did. We should just copy that audio and just drop it right here, right? Uh, <laughs> <So, laughs> but uh, the November 18th is going to be a mini summit for the state of FinOps. Uh, Azure IIS Day, uh, Learn to Increase Agility and Resilience of Your Infrastructure, has been announced on November 17th. And the Google government, oh, I'm going to have this one because it's going to happen after we publish, so during the publishing, we'll talk about Google government education uh, or Microsoft Ignite. Well, and then reInvent, of course, is still coming November 29th through December 3rd in Las Vegas. We talked last week about Meetup as a Service. This is a fantastic uh, opportunity to meet somebody new who you maybe don't know in the cloud space at reInvent. I've signed up uh, to get paired with somebody to go have a nice coffee and, and meet somebody and say hello. Uh, and if you get paired with me, you get stickers. So it's always a win. <laughs> but uh, do check that out if you're going in person and you want to meet somebody and, and get to know more people and network a little bit. Uh, Meetup as a service is a great option, as well as you know attending all the parties and all the other fun things that will most likely be happening at reInvent, I assume, uh, as we go. Have you guys noticed that uh, reInvent is much smaller this year? I haven't. Oh, God, there, I hope so. Are the numbers out? They haven't talked about you know how many attendees, but I mean, just the number of locations in the campus is significantly down. Mm. Uh, so, you know, the, there have venues like Caes- Caesars Forum, which is a mall, is going to be a venue. So I'm not sure how that works. And then the Encore, the Venetian, the Wynn uh, are the only locations that are doing venue stuff. So you don't have to do the long trek to MGM. You don't have to go do the long trek down to the other end of the strip for all those things, the Aria, et cetera. Uh, those are still available to you as sleeping room hotels, but uh, the main venues are all going to be clustered right around uh, the Venetian and the Palazzo, which is nice. Yeah, that's cool. Hopefully, there's still enough space, and they didn't just like cram everyone into those three venues. But well, I assume it was you know based on attendance, expected attendance. <laughs> so I mean, you know, they start selling these tickets, and there's a big you know big request for people to go in person or not. Like that's the first step, and you can kind of predict based on the initial wave what your maybe your subsequent is based on prior years using ML and AI. <laughs> so. <laughs> that's how you do these things and the cameras and the cameras right they probably they probably did it locally and then just processed it all through panorama yeah they will still have buses though they'll still have some of the other stuff there is gonna be a replay party according to the website so all the all the normal shenanigans will be happening there's jams and games days deep racer league is going as usual the bug bus we talked about today uh and of course boot camps and certifications are all available so it looks like probably a reinvent just from like five years ago so at least that's how it looks to me right at this moment but uh so if you are attending, you know, go check that out. Uh, if you miss the deadline to uh, or miss the day to start registering for classes, your class is probably full. Uh, but there are lots of replay sessions for those sessions as well. So, of course. So you mean like 15 minutes after the announcement? Like that's the date, right? Yeah, yeah. That was and that was like two <laughs> weeks ago. Yeah. yeah. And they and they did the Cardinals and they do every year of you know, hey, you can go favorite your stuff in advance, so you can easily register for stuff, and then you go to the where you favorited and. You can't actually add it to your schedule. It's gone. Oh, no, you can't even add it from the schedule there. You have to go take the course name and then go to the other form and then search for the course and then register for it if it's still available, which is like, why? Like, just how, how have they not fixed this? Eight years. It's crazy <laughs> to me. So, yes, it's coming up very quickly, only a month away. 
So if you are attending, it is coming up very quickly. So there you go. And that is it for this fantastic week in the cloud. See you guys next week. Bye. See you later. Bye, everybody. And that is the week in the cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Foghorn Consulting and Jump Cloud. Check out our website, the home of the Cloud Pod, where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, and send feedback or ask questions at thecloudpod.net or tweet us with the hashtag thecloudpod. Cloud Pod.